so we are uh, continuing our our study through Second Samuel. Believe it or not, so so we're in Second Samuel twenty out of twenty four and. Um, 21 and following really kind of begins this little uh, summary of sorts that we're going to cover uh, relatively quickly next week, but we're going to kind of put all of that together uh, next week. And then we'll be into first Kings after that. And so we're getting really close to the end of, uh, of second Samuel and we'll see some kind of, finishing things. We'll see some further uh, sins that David commits. We'll see David on his deathbed uh, next week. I think it should probably only take us one week to get through that, Um, but we'll see a lot of that next week. And so uh, we're getting really close to the end of 2 Samuel, and we're going to begin the transition here pretty shortly towards Solomon taking over the throne. And then uh, we'll spend a good bit of time on Solomon, and then it'll speed up a little bit after that. Um, but essentially we've got, um, we're, we're coming toward the end of, of second Samuel. If you have any questions tonight, as we go through this, just feel free to type them in the chat window. Um, I'll ask for questions at the end. And so if you, if you want to wait till the very end to ask your question, you feel free to do that as well. Um, but if you want to type it in the chat box, I've got it up here so I can, I can see it as we go. Um, So just as a review of where we were, remember the story uh, of David's kingdom really takes a drastic turn right there at when when he has an affair with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. He uh, obviously takes her to be really to be his his wife while she's still married to another man. Um, And he uh, sees this as a complication, obviously, because she's pregnant now with his child. And so she, uh, he brings her husband, uh, back home to try to hide his mistake, his sin, and that doesn't work. And so, uh, last resort, he puts him on the front line of battle and has, and ensures that he is dead, that he's killed. And so that begins a huge, shift in the story where uh, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him what his sin was and then tells him this this uh, reverberating prophecy, this prophecy that, that basically kind of has ripples throughout the rest of the book, which is the sword will never depart from your house. And we don't, at the very beginning, don't totally understand all that that will mean, but the rest of the book plays out exactly what that means. So the first thing that we see is that one of David's sons uh, rapes his sister. And so, uh, which obviously is a a tremendous uh, blight on the whole family. And so then another one of David's sons, Absalom, um, lashes out and kills his brother who raped his sister. And, um, And so now that he's dead, uh, he is really exiled for several years. Absalom is. And eventually Absalom makes his way back into the kingdom. And it's when he comes back that he manipulates the hearts of the men of Israel so that they want to follow Absalom. And so he 
kind of mounts up this coup to take over the kingdom away from David and capturing the hearts of the men of Israel. He's coming, marching back into Jerusalem with a lot of people that have bought into his, bought into Absalom's uh, right to the throne. And so seeing this and knowing that this is happening, David picks up and leaves Jerusalem. So David is exiled out of really the promised land, so to speak. He's out east, much like Adam is kicked out east of the garden here. David, the king, is kicked out east when Absalom's coming in to rule. And it takes some time, but David is hanging out there out east of the land. Absalom mounts up an army and goes out to finish David off and kill him and bring all of his people back with Absalom into the land. And in the process, they're going to go to battle with uh, with Absalom. And so David gives some strict instructions that they're not to kill Absalom. Be sure that you spare the young man Absalom's life. And so with those instructions, they go out into battle and, in, and, and one event leads to another and Absalom ends up with his uh, head caught in a tree, hanging, suspended in midair. And some of David's men find him and they tell Joab, hey, Absalom's hanging in a tree and Joab asks, well, did you kill him? And they're like, no, we we were told not to kill him. And so Joab's like, ah, that's just David being David. And so he (laughs) takes his, his, some men out to where, uh, where Absalom is hanging in the tree, stabs him with a spear, brings him down from the tree and all his men gather around Absalom and they stab him to death. They kill him. So we have Joab, Uh, disobeying orders from David. This isn't the first time Absalom has done that. Absalom has done that before where he has taken matters into his own hands, even if it was against what, against David's wishes. And so um, Absalom, uh, uh, Joab again kills Absalom and uh, David is in mourning about the death of Absalom. And Joab comes back and says, Hey, you got to snap out of it because all your men are going to desert you. You're making them feel really bad for, for fighting in your, in your favor, fighting with you in the battle. Now you're mourning as if they have done something wrong and you need to, you need to wake up and snap out of it. And so David uh, comes to and, uh, and really snaps out of it. And so David, last week, what we talked about is the first thing is David ret- is returning to Jerusalem. And there is a question in chapter 19 as to who is going to be the one to bring him back in. So chapter 19 is set up for us like a second coronation for David. It, it's like he has been removed completely from the throne And now he has gained the throne back now that Absalom has died. So we know at the very least from Nathan's prophecy, the first thing is the sword's not going to depart from your home, at least means Amnon rapes Tamar. Then the second is Absalom kills Amnon. And then third, Absalom tries to take over the throne and removes David from the throne. So then Last week, we see David's coming back to be essentially re-coronated, and there's a lot of question in the, the uh, discussion amongst the people of Israel, who is going to bring him back? Can we just put him back on the throne? Well, one, we have just supported Absalom, so that poses a real threat to the, the, 
children of Israel, as they think about bringing this king back in, what is he going to do to us? Having now shifted our support to his son, now that his son's dead, we're going to shift our support back to David. Is David just going to kill us once he comes back in the land? Is he, what is he going to do? Is he going to seek retribution of some kind? And then how do we ingratiate ourselves back to him? Well, while they're discussing all of this, David appeals to the tribe of Judah. He's from Judah. Uh, he has kin, they're, they're his kin. And so he appeals to the tribe of Judah to come and escort him back into the land and really, you know, rally around him in, in a way of speaking and support him. And so they meet him at the fords of the Jordan, which is that little flat land right around, right around the Jordan River. Um, they meet him out there and they're going to bring him back over to Gilgal. And this is immediately met with some hostility because the, the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, are looking at Judah and they're going, hey, man, that's you just first of all, you didn't talk to us at all about doing this. We have some portion in David. We should have some say. And in fact, we've got 10 tribes over here. And it's just Judah and Benjamin over there. We've got 10 tribes over here. Why is it that you just get to unilaterally decide for the entire nation that, that David's coming back? Plus, we were discussing all of that, and you sort of hijacked our, um, our you know, discussion. And essentially, they're, they're, it seems like they're kind of saying, you really kind of made us look like a fool. Because, you know, now it looks like we didn't want to bring him back, and we were still discussing it. Well, so then at Gilgal, there's tensions between the tribes. There's the 10 tribes of the north on one side, and then there's Judah on the other. And what we're going to see is Benjamin is kind of really more in the middle than, than at first it, it might appear. But um, what, what we come to find out is that Nathan's prophecy is not only related to David's family, but it actually extends to the entire nation of Israel that is more or less split in two over what to do about David. So the whole kingdom, as we left it at the end of chapter 19, the whole kingdom is really in turmoil over what to do with David and how to respond. And what are we, what are we supposed to do now? And so we pick up there. So what happens in chapter 20 is uh, sort of a natural outcropping of what, was how chapter 19 ended. So capitalizing on all this intertribal hatred, there is a Benjaminite who seizes an opportunity. There's some question as to whether he's related to Saul or not. We don't know, but um, this Benjaminite by the name of Sheba organizes this new schism movement um, that gained a number of followers. I would, I have there on the slide, great number. And I have in your worksheet, great number. I might, if I had an opportunity to go back and edit that, I might take out the word great. And we, we know that it's a number and we know that it's at least the people that are there in the decision-making process. We just don't know how massive that is in comparison to the whole land. We're going to see later on that the amount of people that are actually supporting Sheba is not a whole lot of people. So anyway, I don't want to be confusing there, but he, he's got a number of people that are there with him and he garners support from them. So it's certainly a majority of the crowd, as we'll see in this passage. So it says in chapter 20, verses one to three, he says this. Now there happened to be there 
a worthless man, never a good thing to be named in the Bible, a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David, at least the ones that were there, withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. All right. So you notice something, or you you may remember something particular about Sheba's claim here. What he says is that the claim of the men of Israel in the previous passage in chapter 19 should actually be reversed. If you'll look in your verse packet at 2 Samuel 19, 43, I've got that verse there. Um, the men of Israel, this is when there's the fighting and they're complaining and they're talking to the men of Judah. It says, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares. It means 10, there's 10 tribes here in the king and in David. Also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing our king back? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So, the, so they're saying we've got 10, uh, 10 you know, shares here. We have 10, 10 tribes that should have a say. And here Sheba reverses that and basically says, well, guys, it looks like we've got no shares in David, meaning let's, let's go from we support this king to, hey, let's just not support him at all. If Judah thinks that they can do it on their own, then we have the northern tribes have no part in David. And so he's a Benjaminite, traditionally usually latched on to Judah, is really moving toward the northern tribes and trying to lead an insurrection or really a cessation movement away from the tribe of Judah and saying, let's let them fend for themselves. Let's go be a nation in and of ourselves, which is exactly how we need to understand this. It's not necessarily an effort to remove David from the throne, but more to secede from the union. Um, he's Texas, essentially, you know, uh, <laughs> seceding from the union, breaking away. Um, so he's going to kind of pick up and, and leave the rest of them and kind of be a nation in and of themselves. And presumably Sheba would be their king or at least their leader for the moment. And, you know, we don't know how closely related to Saul he actually is. There's uh, one of Saul's grandparents. Uh, I believe it's one of Saul's, Saul's grandparents has a name similar to uh, Sheba's dad, uh, Bikri. And so, it's possible that uh, that you know that Sheba could be somehow related to Saul, uh, but it doesn't really seem that uh, evident within the text of Scripture. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's not what's going on. We we don't really have a, a 
a really a great idea. So we don't know whether this is a struggle between the house of Saul and the house of David coming back. But even if it's not the particular lineage of Saul, he's still a Benjaminite. And so thematically, it still carries that same struggle that we've seen all the way back at the very beginning of Second, really in First Samuel, where the, the Benjaminite and the Judite are at war against each other and there's a split. And honestly, when David comes to the throne in the first place, at the very beginning of First of, of Second Samuel, we have that same issue where there's a, a Benjaminite who is taking over the throne and leading a cessation movement and not supporting David as king and, and all of this. And so David's second coronation looks eerily similar to David's first coronation. And so you've got these, you've, you've got the book of 2 Samuel coming to a close in the same way it came to an open with this war over the, the kingdom and the kingdom divided over one person claiming the throne, a Benjaminite claiming the throne away from uh, David. Now there's this reference you, you notice at the end of uh, verse three, where David had, had taken his concubines and he had put them away so as to live, it says, in, in, in widowhood. Now, remember, when Absalom came into the throne, walked into Jerusalem, David had left, and he put those 10 concubines there in charge of the house. Well, the advice given to Absalom was what you should do is go into your father's concubines. So basically, they set up a tent on the roof, and... Uh, one by one, Absalom went and slept with the concubines. And this was to show all of the nation of Israel around that Absalom had actually taken over the throne because he had David's wives. And that meant that David was uh, basically uh, conquered, as it were. Um, that was a, a kind of a way of, of conquering uh, David. Now, when David takes the throne back, he takes those 10 concubines and he doesn't really remove them from his kingdom. He puts them under guard and under, under protection, but he puts them away in a safe place and it sends the message that he is back in charge, but as, the, uh, as sort of the husband or the guardian of the land. However, they be, since they became widows, it's sort of a... a at least in the text, it kind of presents itself as this uh, kind of sad moment where it's like Israel herself has been widowed. Um, there, there, you can't deny that there's some parallels here, at least between the fact that there's 10 uh, widows, 10 uh, concubines and, and 10 tribes that are, that are uh, splitting off or quote unquote, 10 tribes that are splitting off. Um, from Judah. And so there's this sort of, it seems like a, at least a thematic parallel here between um, the widows that are put away and not fully taken back into David's kingdom and the other tribes that have, have split apart. David has come back into the land. He's taken over the throne and yet his kingdom is, is just not full yet. It's, it, it not, it's not coming back together uh, as, as planned. So, David installs himself once more in Jerusalem and he orders Amasa to call up the military. You remember when he 
was going to come back in, he was the one to call out to Amasa at the very beginning. Who is Amasa? You remember the name Amasa? Amasa is the one that Absalom had appointed head over his military. David had Joab as the head of his military. Joab and David know each other very well. We've, got, we've rehearsed their whole drama for a long time now in this narrative. Joab is a bit of a, a kind of a wild, untamable general, doesn't really listen to David a whole lot, sort of takes matters into his own, not sort of, he does take matters into his own hands. And David's relationship with Joab has been fractured. Joab is the one that ignores David's rules and kills Absalom, though it's unclear as to what, how much David actually knows that Joab has done that. Now, um, so when David comes back into the land, he doesn't keep Joab as the head of his military. He actually appoints Amasa as the head of his military. It seems like in the text, what David is trying to do is garner some form of a relationship back with the tribe of Judah that has been uh, separated from him and, and, and is, is, uh, that he's been exiled away from. He's sort of making this, uh, this sort of peace treaty, if you will. Look, Amasa, not only will I not kill you for betraying me, I will put you as the head of my military. That's kind of the underlying assumption that we're to read into the text, I think. And so Amasa is the head of the military. Joab is second. Um, and David, Maxwell asked a good question. Why didn't David punish Joab? Why didn't he uh, kill him? Well, he's actually going to. Uh, later on, but it's interesting when he does later on, he does it, um, he does it for reasons that we'll get to, not for things that, that we've already seen. And so it's, uh, it's unclear to me as to how much exactly David knows what Joab has done. They're always, if you notice with Joab, he is, I mean, in the text of scripture, at least in the Old Testament in First and Second Samuel, he is by far the cleverest, slickest, sneakiest little dude there is in the text. And and when Joab like when Joab kills Absalom, he doesn't kill him. He gathers ten men around him and they all thrust their spears into him. It's impossible to discern who was the one that killed Joab or killed Absalom. And so Joab is this sort of tricky, tricky guy. And it's unclear as to exactly how much David really knows that Joab Joab has done. He's going to nail him down later on. And we'll get to that when Solomon takes the throne and when David dies. But but Joab will, will in the end get his and it will be by the orders of David. But but that's still to come now. Joab, we're going to see in this passage, Joab is as ruthless as they come. And it sort of makes him one of the, the, yeah, spoiler alert. It it makes him one of the, one of the best. He's like a Bond villain. I mean, in, in some ways it's, it's just an incredible story. And, uh, and he's, he's a, a villainous kind of guy. So David says to, to, there's, you know, Sheba has mounted this revolt and he's going and he's, he's going he's gonna to gather a bunch of support. He's gonna, that's the plan anyway. He's going to go through the land and he's going to try to get 
all the support from everybody around because not the whole the whole nation is not gathered around them and the fords of the Jordan. Only however many men it was were gathered around there around around David. And Amasa is an, is kind of mounts enough of a rebellion to get all the people that were there that were from the northern tribes with him and they they go out. The plan is get everybody in the nation whipped up into a frenzy around Sheba's leadership and then you know, march against David, presumably, and, and kill him and take over the throne for ourselves. Well, David knows that time is of the essence. And so immediately he goes back and he grabs Amasa and he tells him, as the head of my military, you need to go and you need to get all of the men ready for battle because we're going to go into battle against Sheba before he mounts up an attack. And we're going to just take care of this before it ever begins. But... Amasa, it seems, is a little bit inept at being a general. And so Joab is going to take advantage of this. So when Amasa cannot get a military together in the right amount of time, uh, David sends out Abishai over to, to get an army together quickly. And now Abishai is Joab's brother. So notice David... It clearly suspects something's wrong with something's going on with Joab doesn't trust him as far as he can throw him because not only does he not go back to Joab he goes to his brother Abishai and you remember Abishai is the one he's also this is the whole family is sort of like this Abishai is the one that's following with David as David's marching out of the city and the guy comes up to him cursing him uh and Shimei is comes up to him and, and is cursing him and and Abishai looks at David and says you want me to go kill him I'll go kill him if you want me to kill him and, uh, and, and then on the way back in, the same guy comes up and apologizes to David and Abishai looks at him. David again, goes, you want me to go kill him? I'll kill him again. If you really want me to kill him. And so Abishai is just, is gung ho to kill somebody, it seems. And so David tells Abishai, not Joab, get the army together and go out. And Joab pretends to be just a regular guy in the military. And he's going to go up and he's going to find Amasa and he's going to take care of this situation. So let's read this passage in 20. Verses 4 to 13. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that he had, had been appointed. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's helmet. Oh, man. And over it was a belt with a sword. And it's uh, a soldier, soldier's garment. I'm sorry. And over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And he went forward and it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe that the sword was in Joab's hand. 
So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled the entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his, in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab, went out, went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So, so let's just think about what happens in this story for just a second. It's crazy. But David puts Abishai in charge in verse six. So we see that. Let me go back up to verse six here. Um, David said to Abishai, now, now, Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to to fortified cities and escape from us. So he calls Abishai and basically puts him in charge. Grab all the men, take them uh, wherever Sheba is and and kill him quickly, or he's going to do us more harm than Absalom ever did. And all the men that he gathers are called Joab's men. It says that in verse seven, uh, they went out and there went out after him, Joab's men. So th- it's clear in the text, they're Joab's men and David is appointing Abishai over them instead of Joab. And so um, remember Joab had obviously killed Absalom against orders. And now um, he's taking control of the Cherethites and or he's going to take control of the Cherethites and the Perethites or really it should be I guess the Carethites and the Pelethites and who are as we see earlier in the text David's personal bodyguards and so Joab is going to gain control of basically everybody that's important to David and this is going to play into later on where Joab uh uses his skills for even more evil um and so here Joab is following with his brother Abishai. He is disguised in just a soldier's garment. Uh, he kind of wants to be indiscriminate, sort of blend in with the crowd, it seems. And he comes up to Amasa, and it says he's got a soldier's garment on, and uh, he's got, and, and over it, he has a, a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened to his thigh. And as he went, it fell forward. That's at the end of verse eight. Um, and so what it seems is rather than, and maybe this is the best way to make sense of the text, instead of reaching into, as he imagined him walking up to Amasa, instead of him reaching into his sheath and drawing his weapon, which would be a sign of hostility, remember, and, and, and it would seem that Amasa does recognize him, Remember, Joab is the former head of the military. Amasa is now the head of the military. That could be perceived, obviously, as a, a, a relationship with a little bit of friction in it anyway. To then draw your weapon in front of him means I'm about to fight you. It, Joab somehow, I guess, makes it where the sword just falls out on the ground in front of him. And it, it's, it seems, I guess, kind of like an accident. And so he 
he indiscreetly sort of picks it up off the ground. So now he has it in his hand and Amasa doesn't see that he has it in his hand. He grabs him by the beard as if to kiss him and stabs him in the stomach. And the text is pretty clear. He stabs him so hard that he didn't have to stab him a second time. Uh, Just cut him open and enough. Sorry if there's any genuine kids aren't listening, are they? <laughs> okay, good. Um, his kid, you know, his, his blood spills out and he is clearly dying. So there's no need actually to, to you know, stab him a second time. And so um, then there's this scene where Amasa is laying there wallowing in his own blood and all of the men are walking up to him and they're going, wait, what just happened here? (laughs) And they're seeing the guy that they were supposed to be following now is laying on the ground, wallowing in his own blood. Clearly he's still alive in some capacity. And there it's delaying the whole procession of just going after Joab. And so there's this man who's obviously a follower of Joab who just stops the whole procession, takes Amasa throws him out in the field, which is just disgraceful. They don't bury him in any way. And they throw a cloth over him, meaning just don't look at him. He's scum. They don't treat him like an actual, an actual brother or anything uh, with any kind of respect. They just throw him out in the field. And he says to the crowd, which is really important. He says, whoever, this is in verse 11, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Do you notice whose name is first. Clearly Joab's name is first. So the loyalty they're they're decrying or declaring is to Joab first. And it's it's evident that uh, the author of the text wants us to see this because of what's going to happen at the end of this passage. Uh, But but Joab's name is listed first and that's with, with intention. It's not an accident that his name is listed first. And so, hey, if you're, if you're with Joab, oh, of course, if you're with David, I mean, yeah, follow Joab. Um, and so the people kind of go, well, I guess we're with David. Now we're with Joab. And so they follow after Joab. Now, they get to this, uh, this city, and things don't necessarily go according to plan. They're met. Uh, they're, they're confronted. They're, they're stopped by a wise woman. And so I want us to, to see that uh, here here first. Let's read our passage from verse 14 all the way through, uh, four, uh, through 26. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth, uh, Abel Beth Ma'akah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Uh, uh, it followed, uh, sorry, uh, and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel Beth Ma'akah. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart. And, uh, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman came from the city, uh, called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. 
I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give, him, give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. The, the, then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Uh, so he blew a trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Verse 23, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelophites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the, uh, the gyrite, was also David's priest. Okay, so this wise woman comes there as they're attempting to capture Sheba. So they, they put up this little rampart. Have you ever seen like a hill built up like, like outside Masada or whatever, where they build up this sort of ramp and they're going to tear down the wall and this woman comes out to the wall and is like, wait a minute, uh, let me just make peace real quick. Let me talk to Joab. And there's this sort of little funny encounter. Are you Joab? I am Joab. You know, uh, l- let, me, let me talk to you. And so the, the revolution ultimately ended in sort of an anticlimactic sense. And it could have been much worse had not this wise woman intervened and stopped the whole battle from, from taking place. And you notice that it doesn't seem, or at least there's none recorded in the scripture of much of a skirmish put up at all. Uh, it seems like there wasn't too many people that, uh, that put up a fight to kill Sheba, which probably tells us quite a bit about the actual army that he had mounted as of this point. Uh, it seems that uh, Sheba had only won just a, probably just a few cities along the way um, in addition to the, the, the Barites or the, the Bichrites, whichever you have in your text, which were basically, uh, his own kindred essentially. Um, so it seems like those were about the only real people that he had garnering support. So it just, there were there weren't that many people. So he'd only gathered, uh, a, a few cities. Now, um, not only was, uh, he not the real threat in this, Episode, shocker of all shockers, twist ending, Joab is the real threat. We get to the skirmish and we find out uh, things are far worse for David than uh, we ever thought they were. The men are following Joab. The men give up their allegiance to Amasa who's just been killed. They don't say anything really about Amasa who was appointed by David to be general over the armies. And they cast in their lot with Joab, perhaps thinking they're part of, part of David, but 
David had given strict orders to Abishai after that, after Amasa, to take control of the military. And the military seems to be um, in league, in league with, with Joab. So it's like this twist ending at the very end. Great, Sheba's dead, but the threat is still really there in David's kingdom. And so it, it, what's also interesting is at the at, toward the end here in the book, we see a couple of times in the book of Samuel that there's a wise woman that comes to intervene and you know more or less save the day uh, or at least present some counsel that ends up being the way that, that the decision goes. We saw Abigail present herself to David and stop him from killing her husband. Um, and it actually saved him from sin. We saw another wise woman come to David and talk to her, talk to uh, him about the way he was treating Absalom. That ended up persuading David uh, to go to, to take that course of action. And now we have another wise woman presenting herself to, um, to, uh, to Joab and, you know, convincing him to, to do something different and not besiege the whole city and create even more bloodshed across the, across the land. So unlike what we see with a lot of the wise men that are presented to us in the book, uh, we see the wisdom of Jonadab being the, a wisdom that actually led to the rape and murder of Tamar. So he's presented to us as a wise and crafty person, and yet he uses his wisdom not to persuade for good, but actually to scheme, to plot for evil. And then we saw the wisdom of Ahithophel, which actually ended uh, in, I mean, really, it ended in his own suicide. Um, but here is uh, another woman, woman's wisdom being presented sort of as a, a saving wisdom, which is, which is an interesting kind of uh, theme sort of running throughout the, the book of 2 Samuel. Um, now, where this threat of Joab comes to fruition is really here toward the end of this chapter. Um, it's understated, and you might not even think anything about it, but it does seem to be something that's, that's clearly pointed out in the text. Joab had essentially taken over the kingdom at this point. And how do we know that? Because normally... When you get a list of officials that, that are placed at the beginning of a king's reign, remember David is entering into what, what amounted to be a second coronation coming into the land. Well, well normally what you would get is, is at the coronation of a king, you would get a list of officials that are presented there at the beginning. And, uh, and the king would be listed first. Well, here in this list of officials, uh, who's listed first? Joab is listed first, not David. In fact, David is listed at the very end. Joab is listed first. So we see we've got in our verse packet here in, uh, I believe it's 2 Samuel 8, 15 to 18. This is David's first coronation. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equality, equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, and anyway, keeps going on. 
Um, so we have when David's first coronation comes in, David's listed as king, that all the officials that were in David's kingdom are listed after. This is a pattern uh, clearly in the text because we see it uh, se- several times. David's, uh, um, the earlier list, obviously, the list we just read has David reigned over all of Israel. And the same is true, actually, of Solomon's officials as well. So we see in the first Kings passage, um, I have one to 19 listed there I, in your first packet. I just included the first three verses because you get the idea. It says King Solomon was over all Israel and these were his, were his high officials, Azariah. And then it goes on and, and, and lists them. Um, we see, but we see in this passage, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And so Joab's not on the throne that he's not trying to say necessarily that, but it does seem that Joab has more or less, uh, re- replace David in some sense. The official, the list begins with Joab. And so Joab in the text has sort of replaced David, at least in terms of the command of the army, which we're going to see in the end is reversed and how second Samuel ends and first Kings begins. Um, that's going to come back to David's line and Joab's going to put up a big fuss. But here at the end of chapter 20, it's sort of setting up for us this this kind of altercation between uh, what Joab's real intentions are and uh, what, you know, David is ultimately going to do in the end. And so here it's, it's like the nightmare continues to get worse for David. Every time there is some sort of remedy, every time there is some sort of, it seems like fix to the situation and we have things resolved, Absalom, Okay, he's dead. Well, but who killed him? Joab killed him. Well, this is a problem. David is now king, but he comes back in and his people are fractured. Well, not only are his people fractured, but they're so fractured that they actually lead a revolt against his kingdom. And so then that revolt is put to, you know, is is stamped out. But then the person that stamped it out is Joab and he's sort of taking command. And there's this, again, understated, very subtle fracture within the kingdom itself. And it it just kind of reiterates to us over and over again, we can't help but hear the words of Nathan the prophet coming back over and over and over again. The sword will not depart from your house. David's sin continues to haunt him time and time again. In spite of the fact, and this shouldn't go unnoticed, that in the Psalms we see Psalm of David's repentance. David repents. It's not as though the Lord doesn't forgive him, but his sin still has consequences. And the Lord is not going back on any of those consequences. He's going to give them to David's kingdom. But what we've seen, I think, play out, hopefully in Psalms, we've seen play out in 2 Samuel. Um, We've seen play out in throughout the whole Old Testament that it, it's, it's God's way, I, I, I guess is the best way of framing it, of, of proving to us over the course of, you know, 2,000 years we have recorded in the Old Testament that man is incapable of saving himself and establishing the kingdom that God has appointed him to establish. And it's going to have to be... Um, someone who is truly God and truly man to adequately establish the kingdom of God on earth. 
And we're not going to see that until the Gospels, essentially. Um, questions? See nothing? Yeah, I have a question. Go ahead, Go ahead Sean. Yeah, so, man, this is really intriguing stuff. Uh, so thanks for covering this. Good, good. Uh, but my question comes back to one of those at the very beginning, um, and I guess back to even uh, previous weeks. So uh, when David left Israel, right, uh, I assume he took his wives, but he left the concubines, and then we talked about today, you know, what happened with the concubines. So just is a concubine kind of like a second-class wife? I mean, kind of what's the difference between a wife and concubine? Yeah, they, they still have some sort of significance in terms of, right? I mean, this whole reason Absalom did what he did it has some sort of significance in terms of connection with David, but maybe not so much as a wife. I, I, it's a, um, it's not a better way to put this, but a sex slave, and um, so that's that sort of is uncomfortable. But but if you think about, um, it's a power, it's a power issue. So if you think about um, a king um, being one who has uh, many sons, an heir to the throne, um, someone who has, uh, is fruitful and multiplies and fills the earth, one of the ways that they did this was to have wives from other nations, which could be a, you know, a, a form of like a, a peace you know uh between two two nations and um and then they had concubines who would be really um just there to sire offspring essentially um and it it would demonstrate to the nations of the world or the nations that are that are looking at them that they have power and authority they have reach that people are uh, are 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 wanting to pay homage to him um, so Solomon's gonna have a thousand wives and concubines um, and and most of them are some of them are gifts from other countries some of them are um, you know people that are, are basically paying homage to the king um, so it's a it's not really comfortable and not a, a great thing to, to talk about, I know, but it's kind of the reality of, of the way Thrones played out, you know? Was this something that, like, was a sin? I mean, because, you know, we talk about marriage and how the Bible and, you know, it's like one man, one woman, yeah. but, you know, these, someone supposedly after God's own heart had concubines as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so these are Moses gives a command in Deuteronomy and Sean, I want to come back to you because in a second, cause I, I know you, you had a follow up on that. Um, Moses give, gives a command in Deuteronomy that the King is not to take a bunch of wives. So we know early on that there's clearly, it's not favorable to do this. It's not, Early on in the Old Testament, it is not explicitly forbidden. At the same time, it's also not the norm. So we don't need to read David's narrative and go, oh, that was normal. Everybody did this. No, really, the king did this. And 
maybe a few others. And as early as Genesis chapter four, we see right after the Cain and Abel story, um, what's his name? Somebody, anybody remember? Seth? No, after that. Anyway, I can't, I, I, for some reason, his name escapes me. Uh, uh, picks up multiple wives and brags about it. And he's a villain in Genesis chapter four, in the second half of Genesis chapter four. So early on, it's seen as not good. You shouldn't do it. Um, and kind of spoken against, but it's not a, it necessarily explicitly commanded uh, so long as the wife is not the wife of another person that's drawn out in the 10 commandments. And, um, and so we don't really get the full weight of that teaching until the new Testament really. Um, and so uh, Jesus is, Jesus seems when he kind of comments on the sexual ethics of the Old Testament, he tells the Lamech, thank you, uh, Blake. Uh, he tells um, he, he tells them that the reason Moses gave you permission to divorce your wives is because you have a hard heart. And so it seems like what Jesus is getting to, what the New Testament is getting to, and really what the sexual ethics of the Bible is getting to is a husband of one wife and not of multiple wives. And, but you have to also understand the situation that happened after Genesis three is mankind fell into utter depravity. And so it's not as though, and, and, and we're incapable of obeying the 10 commandments for Pete's sake, you know, so much less obey any more rules. And so it's, it's pretty clear that the depravity of humanity is such that God lays out, you know, even a, a base set of laws that point to the laws of the kingdom of heaven, and they're not capable of even following that. But the clear intention as we get to the New Testament is that this is the proper sexual ethic of God's, God's people, is husband of one wife. So some of those things, I guess you, you could say, are progressively revealed. Um, but the Old Testament sort of reveals the hardness of heart on the of the people of Israel. Sean, did you have a follow up to that? Yeah, I mean, so just with that distinction between you know the wives and the concubines, so uh, all of David's offspring that we know of are they they're from his wives, right? And we don't, and maybe we don't know any of any from his concubines. Like for example, the 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 family tree you gave us, you yeah. know, uh, some weeks right. ago, was that just his wives yes. and not his concubines? And he, right. and it's possible that he had possibly many other offsprings through the concubines that we just don't know yeah. about. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, okay. As far as, as far as I can tell from the old Testament text, uh, a wife, uh, uh, an heir to the throne would be from a wife. Children would be sired from concubines. And those, and that, that would sort of, uh, you know, be like, look how big my kingdom is, right? Uh, look how, is how big his harem is. And so the, the, the concubines would contribute in that way, but they weren't a wife in that sense. It, hence in the text, you, I think you even get a little bit of an allusion to this in verse three, when he says, uh, so they were shut up uh, until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood, meaning they weren't widows. Obviously David was still alive. That's one thing, but also they weren't like seen as, as 
full wives either, you know. Well, and and there's the case, I'm trying to remember the guy's name in in Judges. So if they, if they came from the line of the concubine, they were considered illegitimate. And so you have the, the case where the son of a concubine kills off like all of Gideon's kids. Yeah. And they and they make a deal of, of, of his parentage. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I had forgotten about that. It's, yeah. Who needs Game of Thrones with all this? <laughs> I, I know. I mean, if, if I mean, no, you, I don't think Christians should watch it, but you know, so there's like controversy and, you know, and it's just like, we don't need Game of Thrones. We got the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, if anybody made a, a movie of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, it'd have to be rated R. I mean, if you made it realistic, it's, it's a, it's a violent, violent book and, and there's some, there's some really dirty, dirty things in it. So for sure. Yeah. Good questions. Anything else? Go ahead, Blake. Well, I just think like with David, it's so easy. We take this, this line where, where it talks about him being a man after God's own heart. And then we lay on the other side of that, all of the many terrible, terrible things he did. And I think we have to, that obviously is not after God's own heart. So what is it that makes him a man after God's own heart? And I think it's his consistent repentance. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. And the faith that he shows in that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the concubine deal that that's a, that's a, it's a hard one. And, and, you know, multiple wives is, is really tough and, you know, it's not a, fun thing to read. And I've known a lot of people that have brought, been brought into questions just over the Bible. Like how, how did, how could God allow this and, and things like that? Um, and Paul, you know, in the, in the new Testament, I think really helps us out. Um, when he says, you know, that God had passed over former sins, um, until Christ came. And now he is affixed today. And this is when Paul's in Athens and he's arguing in, in I think it's Acts 13, maybe, um, that he had, fixed today uh and when when he would judge the world and so that that was coming to an end uh god's no longer passing over former sins but is 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 reconciling them in christ and and so um what you have you you could say on one end how could god allow so much sin then on the other hand you would also have to say well yeah but it's more he's being patient you know, if he didn't, the, the alternative is because the reality is like a lie is worthy of eternal damnation. So if he didn't allow, you know, the sins, even the sins that we go, that's egregious. And he just dealt with them all right then and there. We wouldn't be here. Everybody would have been wiped off the face of the earth. And so it's uncomfortable and it's hard. And I don't want to make excuses for, you know, the actions of people, uh, you know, doing these sorts of things, but the old Testament text never glamorizes it. You know, when people have more than one wife there, it's never like a, and look how great everything went for him. No, it all turns sour on them at the very end. You know, it's like, you know, Solomon's led away into idolatry. Lamech is, is, not a hero figure in any way. And, you know, David obviously has all of these situations come about from, from his sins and his pursuit of other women. And, uh, and so it doesn't, it's not glamorized. And that's the beauty of the, of the Bible is that 
it doesn't sugarcoat anything. It just tells everything straightforward. And it's really hard to find even a history book to do that. It, it really doesn't. It, it paints all the people as they were. They had good things about them and they had some big time warts. And, you know, as much good things you want to emulate, there's a lot of bad things that you shouldn't. So it's hard, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's worth kind of noting. So yeah, good question. Well, let's, let's go ahead and end there and then we'll get back to, uh, second Samuel and probably close it out next week. Uh, unless, unless I decide not to, uh, so <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly father, uh, I thank you for, uh, just the ability to talk about some of these things that are, that we wouldn't really get to otherwise. And, um, and how they, they help us grow in understanding of the Bible and help us to know more of who you are. And I, and I pray that the things that, that, I, that I've said that have been said adequately represent your word and accurately represent your word and um, your intention in preserving it. And so I pray that uh, your spirit would affirm those things that are true to us over time and, um, and just allow us to forget the things that uh, were unnecessary or untrue. And so um, we know that you grow us through your word and that, that through it, uh, we gain knowledge of you. We grow in appreciation of who you are, what you've done for us, what you've done in us and through us, to us and in spite of us. And uh, we, um, come, we have come to, to, we come to love those things. And as we grow in knowledge of you, we grow in virtue, we grow in, um, you know, uh, temperance, we grow in perseverance, we grow in all of these ways by growing in knowledge of you. And so we're grateful for that. And we're grateful for the study of your word and that it produces that in us. I pray that through your spirit, you would continue to convict us where we sin, um, and that you allow us, even as we look at this passage, to rejoice that you have been patient with us, that you have um, that you have stayed your hand of justice, or better yet, you have exercised your hand of justice on Christ instead of me, and um, and how grateful I am for that. So uh, may we rejoice even over this passage in, the, in that fact. So we thank you for that, and we pray that you continue to testify that to us over time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. We'll see y'all. Hopefully, some of y'all will see you Sunday. The rest of y'all stay safe. Bye-bye.